Hello and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In today's episode, we are celebrating the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras with stories from our Little Fictions live show, I Heart LGBTQI. This show was performed at the Knox Street Bar in Chippendale back in February 2017. A hugely popular festival, the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras aims to raise the visibility of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and intersex communities. And as you'll soon hear, our two stories today do just that. Before we get started, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain strong language. Our first story comes from Sydney author Harry Colotus. Born in England of Greek Cypriot parents, Harry grew up in Scotland. In the 1990s, he was a regular contributor to Sydney's Child. Recently, he has written humorous pieces for Radio Playhouse and was a finalist in the Barclays Bank short story competition run by Spectator magazine in the UK. In his story, Asexual Gelatinous Blobs, Harry attempts to walk in the shoes of his gay son, it is a funny and heartwarming story performed by talented Little Fictions actor Mark Desay. Here is Asexual Gelatinous Blobs. I'm looking back, wondering whether it's possible to recall the when or the why. One thing I do know... There was no single defining moment where it hit me out of a clear blue sky like one of those falling anvils in the cartoons. No, it was more a series of small moments that, to an outsider, might look kind of cliché, but I can't help that. You might say, Daniel, aren't you making too much of this? We're all different in our own way. Yes, but my kind of different made things awkward. I always felt it had to be disguised. But maybe that's just me. I wouldn't like to say I am typical or atypical or even stereotypical. I don't mean to suggest that this has relevance to any other person's life. I can't speak for others. I can barely speak for myself. So, anyway, this is the way I remember it. At six years old, my father wants to sign me up to play soccer with our local team. I have absolutely no interest in kicking a ball anywhere except maybe over the garden fence where hopefully no one will find it. I am not the kind of six-year-old boy who loves sports and trucks and bulldozers. My kind of six-year-old boy smiles dreamily and plays with his sister's Barbie dolls. My father's solution is to offer me a bribe. This works. Up to a point. Every Saturday morning, my body is more or less present on the soccer field. However, my mind is elsewhere, meditating on the love that dare not speak its name, which at this stage of my life happens to be Chinese dumplings. All I can eat after every game. Don't ever mention soccer around me because I'll visualise steamed prawn dumplings and start slobbering like Pavlov's dog. At seven years old, bored off by dumplings for my second season on the field. My main aim is to avoid going anywhere remotely near the ball or, God forbid, the pack of seven-year-old sociopaths who are charging dementedly up and down the field looking for something or someone to kick. 
On one memorable occasion, alerted by the shouting of the excitable man who is our coach, I look down to discover that the ball has rolled to a stop next to me. I stare at it with wild surprise. Oh my gosh, what is that doing there? Parents on the sidelines, including mine, are jumping up and down and yelling incoherently. At this point, I become acutely aware that a swarm of seven-year-olds is bearing down on me with madness in their eyes and murder in their hearts. They want the ball, the one lying at my feet, like an improvised explosive device. I am in danger of imminent involvement in a contact sport. I conclude that I must act. I kick it. The ball somehow goes in. I have scored. Wow. What are the chances? The goalkeeper hasn't moved. He's frozen in horror. He looks vaguely familiar. I have scored in my own net. Oops. Over on the sideline, the coach is incandescent with rage. I have never seen anyone quite so red in the face apart from in cartoons or on morning television. We lose the match. My father tells me it is only a stupid game and not to worry about it, but his eyes are kind of glazed as if they are caught in the headlights of an oncoming truck. The coach takes my father aside and suggests that maybe Daniel's heart really isn't in this particular sport. Actually, the truth is Daniel's heart is not to be found in any sport. Daniel's heart resides elsewhere in the next scenario. At nine years old, I have a friend called Lawrence who lives in my street. He is utterly indifferent to sports and passionate about steamed dumplings. Clearly, it was meant to be. Most days after school, we lie around together in a hammock having intense conversations about the glamorous pop stars and television celebrities we adore and memorable Chinese lunches we have consumed. One awful day, Lawrence tells me his family is moving back to Hong Kong. I'm inconsolable. Goodbye, Lawrence. Hello, heartache. At 10 years old, the year of the Spice Girls. Posh, ginger, sporty, baby and scary, but still my beating heart. The endlessly wonderful Spice Girls sweep into my life via my sister Stephanie. Together with her friends, she forms a kind of tribute act, incorporating makeup, costumes, dance moves. They learn all the lyrics to Wannabe and want to perform the song every day during school lunch breaks. Yo, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. My sister Stephanie is Posh Spice, which makes her almost famous at our school. I bask in reflected glory. I am almost famous once removed, which makes me not quite almost famous. If you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. The girls sing with a logic and sincerity that only an 11-year-old can bring to those lyrics. The singing is off-key, the costumes unconvincing, the makeup a tad overdone, but oh, how badly I want to be a part of it. A real part, not just the brother of a fake posh spice. So then, this is my confession to you. I have never told anyone else this before. I was a wannabe Spice Girl. At 13 years old, most of the boys at school are obsessed with grim, brooding superheroes with pumped-up torsos and superpowers. I myself am not totally immune to this whole superhero mania, but I suspect I approach it from a different angle. I appreciate a colourful costume as much as the next musical theatre aficionado, just as long as it is done tastefully and with flair. My favourite superheroes are the X-Men because I feel there is a connection. They are part of a mutant minority who must protect themselves by keeping their powers a secret from the majority. I totally empathise with the X-Men. I too have a troubling secret power that I must keep to myself at this point in my life. 
At 15 years old, I come out of my shell. I have been elected the president of my school science club, and it has gone to my head big time. I adopt lofty cosmological views. I see that the universe is incalculably vast and that the current obsessions of our species are going to look absurd one day. I deliver passionate lectures during science club lunchtime meetings. I say things like, on that first day of contact with an advanced alien civilization, our mating rituals will be seen for what they are. Just silly. These lectures are an absolute triumph. My enthralled audience lap it up. All three of them give me a standing ovation every time. Encouraged, I go on to cause a stir at the school assembly whilst presenting my science club address. I ask the students, teachers and visiting dignitaries how many of them have given much thought as to how an alien species in the Alpha Centauri star system might go about reproduction. There are no raised hands. It seems they haven't given that much thought at all or possibly ever. I ask them to imagine the existence of a species of superintelligent asexual gelatinous blobs. This doesn't go over too well either. Furthermore, I say, let us imagine that these asexual super smart blobs reproduce by cell division. So what are we to make of this? The audience stares back at me blankly, not making much of it at all, apparently. I spell it out for them by declaring that the sexual practices of any species, including Homo sapiens, are not sacred or profane. The whole of humanity is greater than the sum of our private parts. So, let's just get over our penis and vagina fictions, okay? The headmaster hurriedly winds up my presentation and I am escorted from the podium shouting, For goodness sake, people of planet Earth, lighten up! At 16 years old, I tell my father about how things are with me. It goes okay, I guess, but not as well as I'd expected. In fact, he is shocked. He tries to tell me I may be confused or bisexual or ambivalent like the ancient Greeks. I tell him I am firmly on one end of the spectrum where the gay boys hang out making big eyes at each other. I wonder why he never saw through my disguise over the years. I suppose it doesn't take much effort to disguise something that even the people who are closest to you really don't want to see. After a while, Dad hugs me hard. He is scared for me and wants to protect me from the ignorant ones, and God knows there are a lot of them out there. I reassure him I'll be okay. I've lived with this for... A long time, just like the X-Men. I know that the price of this superpower is a certain amount of vigilance. At 17 years old, Friday night is church fellowship night. I like Christians. Well, you know, the ones I meet at fellowship anyway. I find them kindly and unworldly, like the cast of a 1950s Hollywood musical. Anyway... This particular Friday night, we have a bonfire at the back of the church grounds, just the senior fellowship group. Robert, the youth minister, asks each of us to share something about ourselves we might like the group to pray about. When it is my turn, the warm, inclusive ambience goes straight to my head. I stand up and reveal my secret identity like Clark Kent whipping off the spectacles. Surprise! I'm gay! No, really, guys. I'm serious. This is who I really am. 
And if you would like to pray for me to be accepted and loved as I am, then that would be great. The smiles slip away. There is silence, just the crackling of the fire. The ambience is no longer warm or inclusive. The looks on their faces, oh my God, you should see the look on their faces. Frowning, disturbed, this could get ugly. It seems not inconceivable that they're going to burn me at the stake like Joan of Arc. Or maybe stone me. Robert certainly looks prepared to cast the first stone. Then one of my friends stands up, takes a deep breath, and says that he doesn't care whether I'm gay or straight or whatever. Someone else does the same, then everybody's patting me on the back in a group hug-in, and I feel hugely relieved. It's horribly patronising, of course, but preferable to being burnt at the stake or stoned to death, so I go along with it. At this point, I notice Robert, the youth minister, is staring at me like the Dark Lord of Beelzebub has materialised amongst the church flock. Robert coldly thanks me for my contribution and moves on to the next person. I notice that he forgets to pray for me. The next day, Robert sends me a text message suggesting I might like to find another fellowship group to attend. And he posts me a book, a kind of Christian handbook explaining what is wrong with me. This book suggests that my father must have been a poor role model. It says he is to blame due to his supposed coldness and indifference. Apparently, I'm sexually drawn to men because I've been seeking the father figure I never really had. Dad reads the handbook from cover to cover. Surprisingly enough, his reaction isn't cold and indifferent. In fact, he says he's going to punch Robert on the nose the next time he sees him. Together, Dad and I write a letter to the church elders committee just to let them know how disgusting and ignorant and bigoted we find their handbook. And I insist we add that somewhere in the Alpha Centauri star system, there may be asexual gelatinous blobs who are laughing at them so hard their heads would roll off. <laughs> if they had heads, which is debatable. The church elders, I mean. That was Mark Desay performing Harry Colotus's story, Asexual Gelatinous Blobs. Mark Desay was a Little Fiction's regular throughout 2017. He is the recipient of an ongoing scholarship to the Stella Adler Academy of Acting in Los Angeles and is currently living in New York where he continues to study acting for stage and film. Our next story is by Victorian author Marion Matter. Marion tells us that for decades she wrote whatever was called for, from medical articles and historical research to film scripts. But she began concentrating on the short story form in 2006, after being inspired by Annie Prue's Brokeback Mountain. A grandmother, history tragic, internet junkie and circus student, she lives in the hills outside Melbourne and is pleased to call Heath Ledger her muse. Some of her stories have been published in anthologies and others have cropped up in the shortlists of various competitions. In this next story, Danny Boy, Marion tells the story of someone who feels that they were born into the wrong body. The story is narrated by actor Kurt Pimblett. On the night it was performed at Sydney's Knox Street Bar, author Marion Matter had made the trip from Melbourne to be in the audience. 
The long mirror behind the hostel room's door reflected back a pleasing image. The extra expense of a single room for two nights was worth it, gave Danny the chance to spend some time preening in private. He checked one more time. Baseball cap, low over his face, jacket, overshirt, over t-shirt, boots with a no-nonsense solidity. He stuck a thumb into his belt loop, thrust out a hip, gave himself his best come-hither look, found the result to be totally passable. A sideways turn confirmed the satisfying bulge shaped by his new jeans. Not too modest, but not too blatant. He gave that package one last adjusting hitch, took a deep breath and headed out into the night. A weekend festival, a regional town, cosy in its anonymity, a chance to get away from his unrelenting problems. Crammed into a pub with hundreds of other fans of his favourite band. And who knows, he might even get lucky if some girl was drunk enough not to be too choosy. He downed a couple of beers, kept one eye on the toilets, on the slow traffic to and from the men's. When the inns seemed to equal the outs and the coast looked clear, Danny casually sauntered over, head down, catching nobody's eye. The toilets were empty, silent, save for the constant trickle of water and the wall-shaking thumps from the band outside. He locked himself into a cubicle, pulled down his jeans, sat, breathed in, relaxed, just a little. He could do this. He really could do this. He stayed so long he peed twice. He drank a few more beers. His guts were getting heavy, bloated, demanding attention he wasn't prepared to give them. The crowd increased and bodies began jamming into each other. Girls brushed against him in the crush. Girls with soft curves, silky hair and skin fragrant with scent and sweat. He danced, just a nameless atom in the heaving mass. The night bloomed outwards, euphoric, laden with promise. A girl was eyeing him off, sliding up to him, circling briefly before shifting away, turning for another look. Something wet and unwanted was happening in his crotch. Jesus! He shoved through to the toilets, had no time to count the entrances and exits, made a head-down dash to the nearest empty cubicle. In the blue light, the heavy stains on his wife runts were black. A wave of panicked revulsion hit him. The new jeans, too, were already speckled with the hated stigmata. He cleaned up as best he could, wadded a load of toilet paper into his pants, tied his shirt around his waist and ran, heedless of the others. Fucking cretin, fucking stupid cunt, loser, fucking freak. The litany spun around and round his brain, its rhythm beaten by fists again and again into wretched, disobedient flesh, all the way back to the hostel. Alone once more, he stripped off his jacket and t-shirt, boots and dirty jeans, and, shaking with the years of tension, faced himself in that mocking mirror. A sullen, tear-streaked face stared back, the lips bleeding from a chain of crescent bites. He reached behind and undid the sports bra, two sizes too small and cutting into his yielding body like steel bands. Freed from confinement, the delicate breast revealed a pattern of angry creases, nipples mashed flat from the pressure. He pulled down the wife fronts, wrenched out the carefully stitched roll of socks and hurled them across the room. Torso and thigh, he wore the marks of his accusatory pummeling, and from between his legs, from that taunting nothingness, that despised hole trickled more of the red death. Then he collapsed onto the floor and cried until there was nothing left but the oblivion of sleep. Hey there, kiddo, long time no see, said Alice, already turning towards the kitchen and the kettle. Peek your face up before you trip over it. And what on earth have you been doing to yourself? 
She gestured at Danny's denim skirt over thick black tights and the usual boots, and his hair now growing out into a soft, shiny halo. Got some old Libyan mascara somewhere if you want it. He trailed behind her, head packed so tight with words that none could escape. Alice leaned on the bench, folded her arms, and studied him from head to toe. I've seen misery before, but you... It took two cups of tea, a few tokes on a joint, and several crumbly oat biscuits before he could begin to string together something comprehensible. I took a chance, and it was a fucking disaster. Alice raised an eyebrow. I don't want to talk about it. Not about that. You got a knockback? We all get him. Like I... A knockback, if only. Jesus. If a girl could look at me, see me for who I really am, and then turn me down, I'd think it was Christmas. You're not making any sense, Danny. Yeah? Let me tell you, none of it makes any sense to me. Not one tiny skerrick. It's like some great cosmic joke. His throat tightened. The tea in his cup shivered. Alice waited until the worst of it had passed. You want to try again? I'm not what you think I am. A dyke? I'm not a dyke. Yeah, me neither. I'm as straight as they come and denial's just a river in Egypt. Shouldn't you be past all this shit? You put on a skirt and suddenly you're not a dyke. What next? A boyfriend? Shut up, Alice. Please. He sucked in a few breaths and took it from the top. I don't think I'm a girl. Could have fooled me, darling. She let out an abrupt snorting laugh, but her eyes, never leaving his face, were untouched by any mirth. Go on. I know I'm not. In here. He held his head two-handed. There isn't a girl. Alice touched her hand to the teapot, poured them both some more tea. So when did you figure this out? Did they wrap you in a pink blanket and you started screaming for a blue one? Danny shrugged. The wild thoughts, the doubts and fears and shames of so many years couldn't be easily wrangled into a narrative which made sense to him, to anyone. Nothing like that. When I was a kid, I played with what I was given, wore what my mum put on me. It was okay, sort of, I suppose. But the older I got, I don't know. Alice's voice was gentle. All kids feel that way sometimes. Tomboys, sissy boys, it doesn't mean... No, this is different. This is much more than that. This is... His hands flapped across his body, fingers clenching and opening. Then he pushed back his chair, crawled under the table and removed Alice's espadrilles, replaced them on the wrong feet, resumed his seat and watched her face. She frowned, wiggled her feet, returned her shoes to their comfortable positions and nodded. All over, said Danny. Back when I was a teenager, that's just what it felt like all the time. Then, when I got interested in girls, I thought maybe it was just... He flicked his finger from Alice to himself and back again. Just the sex stuff. But it's not. I know that now. And this, the clothes, the hair, what's that all about then? I don't know. I thought maybe I was just kidding myself, that if I tried to be a proper girl again, it mightn't feel as bad as it used to. And did it help? No. Alice chewed on her lips a while. If you're serious. Yeah, yeah, I can see that you are. You've got a long, hard road ahead of you. You know that, don't you? Hormones, surgery, therapy. Transitioning's not just a stroll in the park. I know that, I know it. I've been reading up everything I can find, and there's a place out at Bayside. You've contacted them. Not yet. Alice, I'm scared shitless. I don't even know if I want that whole package. I don't know what I want. 
it's not like I even hate the way I am. I can't explain it. I just know that when I fill in a form and tick the F box, I feel like I'm lying. I go to the women's lose and I feel like a sneak, getting in where I shouldn't be. I'll do the best I can, I promise, but you need to find people who will really understand, who can talk you through the options, who've tried the options. Tell me, if you could snap your fingers, if you could wake up tomorrow as a man, but how do you wipe out 26 years of being a girl? I just want people to look and see me, whoever that is. When they finally agreed that the day had run its course and he was ready to face the journey home, she hugged him warmly, but it was a chaste and solemn kiss which she planted on his cheek. Shit, she murmured, shaking her head. What? How am I going to explain to the girls that I've been sleeping with a man? She met his puzzled gaze with a deadpan face. Then they both broke into laughter, which didn't quite carry the distance. Goodbye, Danny. Good luck. You know where I am, sweetheart. The train was out of the station and halfway through the rail yards before he even realised they were moving. Wait long enough and no girl will care about your wrong plumbing because no girl will pay you the slightest attention. Wait long enough and you'll just be some queer old woman, alone and lonely, in a house full of stinking cats and everyone will smile at you with one side of their mouth and gossip about you with the other. If they talk at all. If they care. And when you die, Danny boy, they'll note you down as female on your death certificate as Diane Halligan, and no one will ever know. You'll be buried as a fraud, a freak, just the way you lived your whole miserable life, and no one will ever know. The stations blurred by. The old woman seated opposite him was reciting station names. Morristown, Morley, Whittlesea, South Byer, Hartment... As the train slowed again, she began gathering her belongings. Hartment, she said abruptly. Danny nodded. She nodded back, dropped a string bag of oranges. When he picked it up and returned it to her cluttered seat, she leaned forward and patted his knee. Good boy, thank you. Good boy. He flushed. Didn't dare look up at the other passengers. Knew there would be odd looks, embarrassed ignorings. He heard a schoolboy's snicker cut short. The woman started making her uncertain way through the thicket of bodies. Danny jumped up, grabbed her bags, pushed a clear path to the door. As she stepped onto the platform and took her shopping from him, she said, loud and clear for the benefit of all, this is a good boy. And within his chest, his heart leapt in response. He didn't get back onto the train, just stood a while as the bells chimed, the doors slammed shut and the carriages drew away taking the anonymous mob to their own destinations. Then he pulled his phone from his shirt pocket, entered a number he knew by heart and said, Hello? I think I need to talk to someone. My name... My name is Dan. Thank you. That was Kurt Pimblett performing Marion Matters' Danny Boy. Kurt is a queer, non-binary trans guy with a degree in creative arts from the University of Wollongong. They performed the role of a transgender teenager in Belvoir Street Theatre's Here and the character of C in the play Crave, produced by Montague Basement for the Sydney Fringe Festival. That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed our stories for Mardi Gras. Tell us what you think. Please drop us a line using the feedback form on the 2RPH website or leave a comment on the Little Fiction's Facebook page. We'd love your feedback on the show. 
And if you have missed any of our shows, or if you'd like to re-listen or catch up on some of the extended interviews I've had with our authors and actors, you can find all of our past episodes on the 2RPH website. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your Little Fictions on Air host. This episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher, Bronwyn Meehan, and our audio engineer was Scott Harrison. Bye for now, and happy Mardi Gras.